Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the DLC Drop Podcast. Today it's my pleasure to welcome my friend James Creech. James is the co-founder of Paladin, and Paladin has just been acquired by Brandwatch, where he now serves as SVP of Influencer Strategy. James has a tremendous story about building this company, what it's like to go through that acquisition process, and also some key learnings from hosting his own podcast, All Things Video. Join me in talking to James. Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the DLC, DLC Drop, Drop Podcast. Podcast. All right, welcome to another episode of the DLC Drop Podcast. And today it is my pleasure to welcome James Creech, co-founder of Paladin, the most recent employee at Brandwatch as SVP of Influencer Strategy. Thank you for joining me today, James. Thanks, John. I'm pumped to be here. Yeah, so you and I have known each other, but let's see, about four years, I want to yeah, say. Sounds right. Is that according to your calendar as well? <laughs> yeah, uh, always fun when we get to connect through the esports and gaming community and keep in touch, for sure. A- absolutely. So I've been a big fan of what you've done at Paladin. I think influencer strategy is one of the most important in the esports space. And the fact that you've co-founded this platform, you have now successfully... Uh, merged into an acquisition here if that's the right terminology you can correct me if not but really just want to share first of all tell the audience what you're doing now and let's walk Mm -hmm. through this career path of how you got to where you're at today Sure. So Paladin uh, was an influencer marketing software platform, right? Uh, Co-founded with two partners, Ole Morton Amundsen, Thomas Kramer, back in April 2016. We had been early practitioners of influencer marketing, right? So experiencing these pain points firsthand at early agencies and talent networks, helping these social media stars on YouTube, Instagram, Twitch, TikTok, right? Grow their careers, work with advertisers, And I tell you, man, seven, eight years ago, it was difficult. It was um, a manual process. It was time consuming. It was challenging. So that was the motivation to launch the business as we had, you know, been through that that heartache and uh, all the pain points of trying to to do that by hand. So there's got to be an easier way to do that. So that led to us building Paladin. Um, all the way through to our acquisition by Brandwatch into March of this year. Yeah, well, I'm happy to get more into the story, but long and short of it was amazing team, great software company with kind of similar vision and DNA to, to our story, and just bigger ambitions to, to build something really incredible together, combining their consumer intelligence products along with social media management, and then now with influencer marketing from us as the third leg of the stool, just unlocking you know a really powerful, complete social suite. That's awesome. So can you can you tell the audience what is Brandwatch and what are you looking forward to doing better together than the two apart? Yeah. So Brandwatch started its journey over a decade ago in social listening, right? So at the dawn of social media, people were trying to make sense of all these conversations that we have online and these signals um, that come through in this this rich data. And really, it's it's reinvented the way that we communicate and talk about brands, do market research, and so many other activities online. You think now about you know when you have a, a bad experience with a brand, people go to vent on Twitter, right? And so yeah. it's become this con- consumer touch point. There's just so many rich aspects to the way that we we leverage social media in our daily lives today. And so Brandwatch set out to understand that and then make sense of, of that information. They were acquired by a company called Cision, which is a, a big PR uh, business here in the US. Um, Cision owns a number of assets, including this company called Falcon, which was a social media management tool 
based out of Denmark, an amazing kind of uh, Danish startup success story. And uh, yeah, I think the founders of Brandwatch, Giles Palmer, and then Ulrich Bo Larsen over on the on the Falcon side, had known each other for a long time, dreamed of you know what it could be if they brought those businesses together. Fortunately, had a chance to do that through Cision as, as the parent company. And they knew that influencer marketing was going to be an important part of their strategy going forward. So um, that's kind of where we came into play. But that's a little bit of the history and, and backstory on the Brandwatch and the Falcon products. And now that is all being merged together as one complete, powerful Brandwatch suite. Amazing. So you have this focus and this interest in influencer marketing. Is influencer marketing something that you've always been interested in or did somewhere along your journey you discover it? Yeah, so I went to school for uh, film production, right? So I was I went to USC to study film and business, and I think partially through my time in, in college, I realized well, I'm more interested in the the business side than the creative or the technical aspects of film, as much as you know I'm the enjoyer and a, a consumer of entertainment. And I was gravitating towards a lot of these new entertainment formats. So, you know, television, gaming, right? Digital media. All Did of you say television of- is a, a new version uh, of internet? You look great for your age if, if yeah, that's it's, your it's decades old, college experience. Think about the innovation that's happening in TV. And when I was at USC, right, whatever, 10, 12 years ago, it, it, there was a focus on film still, right? I mean, TV was yeah. an important aspect, but um, focused on big blockbuster movies. And I, I was thinking about the fact that, well, so many of my peers who are going to graduate are not going to work in film. Many, many will, and they'll be very successful. But I bet you that a number of them will go on to successful careers in television or in digital media. Mm-hmm. And so the innovation, the, the type of um, uh, change that was happening in television, we think about, you know, streaming and the yeah. digital aspect, which, you know, TV in, in many ways and short form series have, have paved the way for. That was what I was excited about, these changing business models in entertainment, the future of what that world was going to look like. So out of school, I, I kind of stumbled across gaming initially. So I worked at, I had an internship um, at Activision Blizzard, mm-hmm. uh, which was incredible, right? I, I'm a big gamer. I loved having the experience of working in this kind of big studio environment. But then I, I kind of, my last year of school, I started working at this ad tech startup and just fell in love with the the hustle and the startup culture and the adrenaline rush of what it means to build a business from, from yeah. the ground up. And that's what set me on the path of, okay, I'm really interested in social media, digital media, and all this innovation that was soon to start happening in the creator economy. The DLC Drop podcast is sponsored by iShaker. I've been a huge fan of this brand for the past few years, ever since I met founder Chris Gronkowski. What I love about this product is the brand story, the functionality, and the customization. iShaker is a Shark Tank company invested in by Mark Cuban and Alex Rodriguez, owned by NFL players Rob Gronkowski and Chris Gronkowski. I love using my iShaker anytime I'm driving to the podcast studio, I'm going skateboarding, or I'm at the gym. No matter what I'm doing, it just does a great job of keeping my drinks hot or cold. The customization for iShaker is something that's super unique. You can get any name, just about any logo engraved onto your iShaker and delivered to you within just three to five business days. Get your own DLC drop branded iShaker at iShaker.com forward slash DLC drop. Save 20% on all iShaker products with the discount code DLC drop. Yeah, I remember when I was at GameStop, there was an article, I think it was in Forbes, that had the top 10 influencers and eight of the top 10 were gaming 
influencers of all influencers yeah did gaming specifically influence that influencer focus because you see so much of it in the space I think so, right? You go back to the early days of YouTube and it, it, people think of it early on as, okay, well, it's cat videos and pirated TV content. And then obviously that changed over time with the rise of UGC. But at you know early days of YouTube, it felt like, well, half of the service is music. You had huge Vivo channels, artist channels, and then you've got gaming, right? I mean, Let's Play videos, streaming became enormously popular on the platform from the jump. And then over time, we've seen just uh, this rich portfolio of creative talent and, and content be birthed on YouTube, all sorts of formats we never would have thought of, right? Unboxing, haul videos, yeah. um, video essays, like all this stuff that never would have been greenlit to be put on traditional television now has its home on YouTube. And then of course you have Vine and you have Facebook and Instagram, which get into video and then TikTok and short form and just kind of revolutionizes the whole kind of video space. But yeah, absolutely. Gaming was a big part of that, not just for my experience, but I think collectively for our experience and how we think about um, video. And, you know, a lot of these early influencers, you know, you think about Smosh, they were yep. OG YouTube talent. They were huge into gaming. They now have dedicated, you know, Smosh games. You know, th that interest bled into the world of, of Twitch and you've got, you know, Ninja being probably one of the most recognizable influencers in the world. And, and a lot of that happens because of the cultural power of gaming. Meanwhile, you've got all of these new game engines being built, these new collective gaming experiences. Gaming becomes more mainstream. We all become casual gamers. And then uh, a lot of us become probably more, spend more time gaming and in these social gaming experiences through COVID. So it's absolutely foundational to the story of social. And of course, that plays in influencer marketing because a lot of influencers are these UGC creators who've been homegrown on these platforms and are leaning into these new business models of saying, hey, I can make a living doing what I love, playing a game and building a community around that. Yeah. So it sounds like you yourself said, hey, I can make a living building a business and supporting these influencers and helping them to do things more efficiently and better. So you, so you went to this agency, you fell in love uh, with the grind, with building businesses, what was the catalyst for you to then say, I'm going to do this on my own with my, with my business partners and do it a better way? Yeah. Oh boy, John, the truthful answer to that is probably some combination of youthful naivete and uh, ambition, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because when, oh, we're, when we're in our mid twenties, we feel invincible and like we can do anything. And to be honest, I had never prior to this thought of myself as an entrepreneur, right? Mm. I, I originally thought I was going to go to law school. So I was, I studied political science. I was pre-law at USC in addition to doing business and film, realized, you know, I love the law, but three more years of law school and going into debt and everything else was probably not in the cards or not, not the plan I was most excited about. Sure. Um, and then, you know, I thought, oh, I'll go work in corporate America. I had accepted a job to do consulting, moved to New York. Long story short, ended up loving the startup journey so much that I ended up staying and, and working at that startup even after I graduated and, and not doing the consulting gig, which, cool. you know, looking back changed my life and was definitely the right decision, but kind of a, a crazy thing in, in the moment. So for me, I hadn't thought of myself as an entrepreneur, but fell in love with startups in early stage. Mm. Thought of myself initially as an operator because I, you know, was in an operations role at both Channel Factory and then coming into Ben Pixels where I worked prior to us. It was all you knew, Paladin. right? It was yeah, your it was whole experience. It's like, I'm an yeah. operator because I've only operated and I haven't done any other roles yet. Exactly. But I guess what I was figuring out throughout this this time was that I was a problem solver, right? That what came into Ben Pixels, they had really talented operators. They had a great COO, a general manager. They didn't need operations help. They needed growth. And so mm -hmm. I said, okay, I'm going to figure out where the growth is going to come from. 
And lo and behold, you know, that came from my ambition or the impetus to say, Hey, let's, you know, let's build software. Let's license that to other players in our space. And my co-founders, Thomas and Ole had a passion for that as well, but I don't know what to tell you. Right. I was, I was young. I was excited about the category was incredibly, I had strong conviction that although this was still brand new, it was the wild west. There were more things we didn't know than what we did know that we could figure it out. And then I was willing to take the entrepreneurial leap and, and kind of figure it out as we, as we went along and, and was fortunate to have two really talented partners that complemented my, my many weaknesses. Right. So yeah. I think together we had the, the belief that, you know, we don't have it all figured out, but we'll get there together and we'll put it all on the line to make it happen. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by entrepreneurs and what their upbringing was like, what their parent relationship was like. I grew up with teachers. I never thought that I would start my own business. Um, kind of surprised through COVID, had my eyes open to a number of things and opportunities to build a personal brand, start the podcast, things like that. What about you? Were your pa parents entrepreneurial? And did you always have this perspective of, something can be done better or did that emerge after college? Well, first of all, I'm very grateful to my parents, right? They gave me an amazing foundation growing up. Um, both my parents worked in oil and gas. They met at Shell in the eighties in New Orleans working in supply chain. Yeah. Right. So my dad spent over 35 years in oil and gas first at Shell for a number of years. And then at Hess, he retired, but not for very long. He's actually running a startup now um, <laughs> called Maja Metal. And it's amazing to see him take on this new life, um, cool. this kind of new chapter in his career, even after we thought, oh, you know, he's going to hang up his spurs in the oil and gas business. And now he's doing this incredible nano elimination technology business. Awesome. Uh, my mom, you know, was amazing. And, and, um, took a step back from her career to raise us, right? So I have two siblings and she was always there for us as a mother and did an amazing job being, you know, an all around incredible mom growing up. But she also had a number of other interests and career pursuits on the side. I remember her being an educator, right? She had her master's degree in education and taught at um, the various uh, colleges and universities nearby. She also was a group fitness instructor. So um, she was, you know, teaching exercise classes and that was kind of a passion for her is fitness. And she, she helped pass that on to me and my siblings as well. But I think about it, right. And like I had a grandfather who worked for IBM for years and got a pension and retired and worked for one company his whole life. I had a, my other grandfather was in the Canadian Navy and you know, that was his life for the most part. And then my parents' generation was a bit different, right? My, my mom and dad both had a number of different kind of companies they worked for in their career, but all largely within the same industry, though my mom perhaps was maybe a bit more entrepreneurial, but I think what they instilled in me was this desire to, to learn. Right. And so mm. constantly educate myself, whether that's formal education or just, you know, teach yourself and, and learn things in other ways. Yeah. And then also just this kind of support system and belief in me that, you know, will will support you, whatever you want to do. Cool. And I think, you know, when I came to them and said, Hey, I want to launch a business, they were like, that sounds great. And, you know, like we believe in you and we think you can do it. And they were incredibly supportive in, in every meaning, every sense of that word. So I'm very grateful to them. But yeah, I don't know that I can like trace the genealogy to say, hey, I felt really entrepreneurial, but never for a lack of, of support or, or encouragement from my family. That's cool. You know, it's, when you have that support of people around you who are saying you can do it, I think what you can do, the opportunities, the possibilities are that much greater. Question about when you got to this point when you said, I am going to 
you know, found this business with my business partner. Was there one or two main things that you saw in influencer marketing at the time that you said, this needs to be fixed and I can fix it? Yeah, I think when we started out, we said, okay, there's this whole new category of um, creator networks, digital agencies, soon it was esports teams, right? You know, and this was a constantly evolving landscape. So we, we said, there's, we know that there's this huge growth potential in this business. We want to figure it out. We have good relationships. We understand the pain points because we've experienced them. So we're going to go chase down this problem. I think the first few products we built were number one around influencer discovery, right? People were trying to identify talent before others so they could sign them to their agency or um, find a way to work with them. If they were a brand, obviously you want to know the the up and coming influencers before anybody else. So that was certainly an important product out of the gate. We also built an influencer CRM and payment solution. So it was important to understand, okay, well, how do we work with these people? Keep track of all these relationships. At the time there were creator networks managing thousands and in some cases, tens of thousands of influencers. So just keeping track of those relationships at scale was very challenging. And then, you know, how do we pay these people? Make sure it's accurate and on time. That was a, um, yeah. a really essential piece of it that we we built a strong expertise in early on. And then, you know, more recently, and where the business has grown significantly is campaign management and reporting, right? So influencers have diversified their income streams over time. It, you know, was largely ad dependent initially, and then branded content came along and this e-commerce and merchandise and everything else you can think of these days. But um, early days, it was, you know, advertising and branded content. And so we said, well, we want to facilitate this and we know how much work it is to generate sales materials, chase down influencers for screenshots, build out decks and proposals, track all of the posts that are part of a campaign, and then ultimately yeah. generate a wrap report Let's tap into the social platform APIs. Let's grab all those stats on demand. We'll give people much clearer reporting, much more actionable reporting, so they can improve and optimize their performance in real time. And that's really what Paladin has become, right? So now as the Brandwatch Influence Suite, the core pillars are influencer discovery, relationship management, and then campaign reporting. So once you started this, you started to gain some traction. I'm curious, number one, what was the the response from brands and agencies who were your target market, but also what were the responses to the influencers who up till then are either managing everything themselves or a lot of times not managing everything themselves and a lot of things falling through the cracks? Yeah, it's changed so much over the years, right? When we first started out, this was a brand new experimental thing for a lot of brands and agencies. And then over time, you know, it said, okay, where does this budget come from? Is it, you know, end of year slush funds? Is it, oh, maybe this has come from the social budget or the digital budget. And then over time we saw, okay, now there's dedicated influencer marketing spend that's being allocated. You have um, Mm -hmm. expert practitioners at agencies. So you have dedicated kind of agencies springing up to say, we know influencers, we can run campaigns. We'll make sure it's a seamless experience for you. Over time that was happening in brands as well. They were, they were building out dedicated influencer marketing teams. And so we've seen that transform significantly and our product has evolved to, to serve those um, different types of users. But yeah, it's changed from, okay, where does this live to absolutely every brand is doing some sort of influencer spend. Those that are doing it are seeing how much it works, right? Mm-hmm. Because especially for younger generations, they're sick of interruptive advertising, right? And the only way to captivate their interest is to speak to them right. through a source that they trust. And so influencer marketing resonates for, for those reasons. And so brands are leaning into it. Agencies are leaning into it on their, on the brand's behalf. Influencers have gotten a lot more savvy too. They went from 
you know, how much do I charge for this and how does it work to, you know, this is real business and, and they operate as such. You think about someone like a Mr. Beast, who's got, you know, a manager and an agent and teams mm-hmm. around him to help with production and editing and ideation strategy that has carried through, you know, to the branded content side as well. And, and now these productions um, are very robust and very incredible in terms of the content that's produced, but also the impact that it has on the audience. So it's come a long way from, from those early days. Yeah, if somebody listening to this podcast was thinking about, you know, how do I do influencer marketing the right way? Can you tell us just high level, are there things to make sure you do to do it right? And are there some common pitfalls that people often do to do it wrong? Yeah. So you have to keep in mind that there are multiple stakeholders here, right? There's the brand that wants to reach the audience. There's the creator who has a special relationship with their audience and needs to be true to that, right? Authentic in their voice and the the type of content that they create, the way that they represent a brand, if they're bringing a brand into a partnership, and then ultimately the viewer, right? Like the audience, how is this going to be received? And so to get that right, the best influencer marketing campaigns involve a true collaboration between brand and creator, right? It's not just a yeah. brand writing a check and saying, you know, send us the the content. Can't wait to see it. Right. It, it, this is a human being who is putting their creative life force into this piece of content. And so, you know, if they, if they want to make something truly special, they should collaborate with the brand and maybe there's something that the brand can bring to the table, right? Strategy, resources, additional reach more than just money, right? Think about how do we bring something to life that a brand couldn't do on its own and that an influencer or creator couldn't do on their own. Yeah. Together, they make something spectacular, right? And so, you know, I, I use Mr. Beast as another example, right? His his Squid Game video, he recreated all of the sets from Squid Game. Incredible, it, yeah. He spent millions of dollars in production, right? And, and it's this like this spectacular piece of content that couldn't exist without the brand, right? Helping with a lot of logistics and expertise and strategy around kind of creating this really interesting cultural moment in this piece of content. Point, so yeah. that's a good example. I think the common pitfalls are, you know, a brand comes in and they don't know what to do. And so they target the wrong influencers or the wrong platform, right? It's easy to say, okay, well, we should be on TikTok because that's exciting. And you know, that's where we think we, we need to be. Yep. But if that's not where your audience lives, don't be on TikTok, go on Instagram or Facebook or Twitch or, you know, Pinterest, or, you know, podcasts. There's so many different channels now to reach influencers and reach the audience that, that keep the, you know, where, where do your um, potential customers already spend time. That's right. where you should start. So that's a key thing to, to, to start out with. The other common pitfalls are thinking of influencers as ad inventory, right? Again, these, these are people, they're human beings. Um, they're not just a distribution outlet. They're not a commodity. So you can't say, well, influencer A and influencer B have the same reach and engagement metrics and similar audience. And therefore, you know, we think that we're going to execute this by programmatically, or they should cost X and they fit into our nice little Excel spreadsheets. Like mm-hmm. you, I get that media planners are out there and they have a job to do and that's important. But at the end of the day, you have to think of this as more of a creative partnership and really um, lean into that and work with the influencer or the creator as this um, special resource, right? And, and so for that reason, I, I tend to find that depending on the brand's goals, larger influencers tend to, to do better, right? So a creator with a significant following or maybe a mid-sized following tends to outperform getting 10, a hundred, a thousand nano or micro influencers together. Now, depending mm-hmm. on your strategy, that can make sense. But if you're just trying to get reach and impressions, 
you know, sure you can activate that at scale, but the, these really big bespoke campaigns with larger talent often can have a bigger impact. And so it's just, you have to think about what is the strategy and how to follow through on that. Yeah. One thing that I've seen in the esports space is that you have these influencers who are kind of mid-level influencers, but their engagement is through the roof because literally every single person loves them. In fact, uh, one perfect example is Melanie Mack. She was uh, a host on GameStop TV. She lives here in Dallas. She's a friend of mine and was kind enough to join us on the podcast. She tweeted a couple of things about like, hey, check out this podcast I was on and boom, viewership, you know, followers through the roof. And what is your advice? I know you said, you know, go after these these bigger ones for the the, the views and, and and the clicks, but from an engagement standpoint an engagement rate standpoint, is it always right to go after these these bigger guys or uh, is there something to the smaller, more engaged audience? Totally depends, right? And so um, start off by defining your goals. What are the KPIs that we're going to use to measure success of this influencer campaign? And it very well could be we're trying to increase brand awareness and you know maybe purchase consideration, and, and that's achieved by having as much reach as possible. And so these um, smaller influencers with a really tight community and this you know, audience niche are going to have that strong engagement, that could absolutely be the strategy. In other cases, you might say, well, we're trying to drive product sales. And so in order to, to deliver a strong conversion, we need maybe mid-sized influencers or larger influencers that have this big engaged audience that kind of very seriously trust their recommendations. So, you know, it just, it really starts with defining those success criteria and then backing into okay, how do we, you know, how do we identify and evaluate influencers that are going to deliver that results and then, you know, optimize on the fly, see which, yeah, during the campaign, which influencers are performing, which creators maybe are not as much. And if you can reallocate budget or you've got additional spend or paid media that you're going to use to boost the influencer content, you know, then, then you can tactically focus those energies on the influencers that are yielding the best results for you. Yeah, that's a great point. So I think the takeaway there is the first step is identify what are your KPIs? What do you want to get out of this campaign? And that will help you determine, okay, am I going big? Am I going smaller? Am I going more micro as the result of what you want to achieve? That's a great nugget of knowledge there. Thank you for that. As you've, through Paladin, solved a lot of these challenges in the influencer marketing industry, what are some that since you founded the company, you've you've seen improve? most? And what are some that are still challenges today? Mm. Well, there's a number of challenges, right? I mean, I think the first thing that comes to mind is how crowded and competitive the landscape is. And we've got Mm. some amazing competitors out there that keep us sharp, keep us on our toes and, you know, help us realize, at least in the early days, it was nice to see that there were other people chasing the stream too, because we weren't the only ones crazy enough to, you know, think there was a business here. Yeah. But that's certainly something that comes to mind. The other is how quickly the speed of social moves, right? The rate of innovation in our industry is constantly accelerating. So to stay on top of it, uh, new platforms, new formats, new trends, we have to be very responsive, listening to our customers, listening to the market, saying, you know, what do people need in the future? What should we be building to to be responsive to that? We made a number of mistakes along the way, right? As uh, kind of first-time entrepreneurs, there were a number of things we didn't get right um, the first time around and can constantly think to improve on. I I think one of the, the biggest pieces of advice that I give to other early stage entrepreneurs that I 
mentor or I advise is go deep before you go wide, right? I talked about, mm. you know, when we were building those first few products, we were doing influencer discovery and CRM and payments. And, you know, on, on the one hand, it was nice to have a broad offering and be able to, you know, go out and, and try to help a lot of different types of people. But it can also be a distraction when you're trying to do too much, right? Because it's way easier to nail your story and your messaging and find that product market fit. When you say we are the best in the world that whatever, just pick one of those. Hey, one we're going to nail influencer yeah. discovery. And then we're going to expand from there into adjacent categories as it makes sense. But we spread ourselves very thin in the early days when we had limited resources. And so that was a big learning that we took away from this. Specifically is working with influencers. What are some of the things that you're still working on? Yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of things I think as an industry, we're working to improve. I mean, from from a practical day-to-day standpoint in the business, we're, we're largely a, a B2B uh, product. So our customers are brands and agencies, but we we interface with influencers and we want them to have strong trust in, in the products. We want to be this reliable third-party source for having a good interaction with the influencers, safely authenticating their profiles and gathering data and analytics that can be used to help them achieve you know better results, help them get more campaign opportunities, make more money and earn a living kind of doing what they love. So that's an exciting proposition. I think as an industry, we've got a lot of work to do as we think about you know creator monetization, right? This is mm. probably no surprise, but there's a, a growing movement to help build out more of a creator middle class. A lot of the sure. success and the, the economic uh, rewards of this business still accrue to the top influencers and algorithms help to reinforce that. And, and I think, you know, there's, an amazing breadth of talent across social platforms today. And it's amazing. More and more are able to earn a living, you know, through a creative enterprise, but that revenue mix has been diversified and there's a lot more work to be done in terms of empowering creators in terms of audience growth and and revenue growth. And so I think, you know, that's something that, you know, I think a lot about and care a lot about as we, mature and progress this industry is, you know, we have to make sure that this is sustainable long-term for everyone who's interested and passionate about having, you know, earning a living and, and, and building a creative future on social media. Absolutely. So you've, you've taken us through this, the founding and kind of the start of Paladin. Tell us about the emergence of this opportunity of becoming acquired by Brandwatch. Yeah. So I was fortunate to meet Giles Palmer late last year, I guess the summer of, of 2021. And, you know, we had had some inbound interest in the business. We had been thinking, okay, well, what is the future of Paladin? We had you know, fortunately been in the midst of quite a nice little growth spurt. I think, you know, COVID accelerated a lot of these digital trends. And so right. more and more brands were rushing to influence or doubling down on, on their activity there. And so we were riding the wave and very excited about, you know, kind of being in the scale up phase and executing on more international growth and bring on you know more features and expanding the team. But we realized, like I said, a crowded and competitive landscape, we were seeing signs of it starting to consolidate, right? Creator IQ, Tridynamics, you know, prior examples of Isaiah making acquisitions, others in the space seeing these signs of consolidation. And so for us, it was really a, a, a consideration of, well, you know, we had historically been bootstrapped, which is a lot of stories there too. A challenging way to build a business, but also very rewarding because we learned a lot in the process of, you yeah. know, you know, doing this maybe the hard way, but do we go out and raise money and then execute a, a broader vision where we start to roll up competitors or we, you know, scale up dramatically on the sales and marketing side and continue, you know, pouring gas on the fire? Mm-hmm. Or do we find a partner that shares our vision and 
you know, it can help us accelerate our growth, get this into the hands of more customers um, and build something even more powerful together. And when we met the Brandwatch team, it just from from the instant we met, you know, we clicked and, and it felt right. And so we said, OK, this is definitely the, the path that we think makes more sense for us, for our customers, for our shareholders. And then long term, like I always tell people, we started this business to solve a problem. Brandwatch has over 7,500 customers globally. This lets us solve those problems at a much bigger scale and in a much more meaningful way. Yeah. And, you know, there's so much power to unlock between the Brandwatch consumer insights tools, the, you know, the, the legacy Falcon social media management tools and, you know, Paladin now the Brandwatch influence suite. There's so much to do together. So that's what got us excited and, and just made this, this thing really come together. Yeah, I'm a big fan of those smaller teams, smaller boutique agencies and companies where you're more the speedboat around the Titanics of the yeah. world where, you know, and you can kind of, because you have this lower overhead, you're bootstrapping it, you don't need as much revenue to solve your, your profit issues. But there's also the other side of the coin of capabilities, right? Mm -hmm. And it sounds to me like you're cruising around your little jet boat being very successful and solving a lot of problems. But then you look at, you know, the brand watch yacht in this analogy and yeah. saying, man, what if we were on there? Imagine what we could do. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we did a lot with a little, and I'm incredibly proud of our team because it's a testament to their hard work and the amazing product, you know, they built over the years, but we were, you know, bursting at the seams in terms of demand and just opportunity in front of us. So yeah. as much as we were scaling up as quickly as we could, we said, yeah, there's a lot more to do here. We can run a lot faster with great resources and great support. And, you know, Brandwatch saw that and, and believed in that. And it was core to their strategy to say, we want to be um, part of this business and, and have deep ties into our other products for this type of business going forward. So yeah, it's amazing to go from an organization of what, 25 people to 1200 people almost overnight. That's uh that's a fun learning curve and adjustment for us, but to, you know, put this tool in the hands of a sales organization of 650 people is incredible. Right. And to see their excitement right. and enthusiasm for the product and to be able to empower customers who had a real demand for this. I mean, Brandwatch customers, Falcon customers were asking for this and to be able to kind of overnight turn on that capability was just an amazing thing. So we're in the midst of that now and there's a lot more work to be done, but this is the fun part, right? This is the getting to execute on that bigger, broader vision together. Yeah, so you just said you went to 25 employees before you uh, were acquired by Brandwatch and you started out with three co-founders, including yourself, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yep, three of us. And we had early founding team, great engineers, you know, product folks, operations and customer success sales folks with us from from those early days. So yeah, very privileged to take a, a mighty small band of folks and, and grow that over time. And, and yeah, now join, join a much larger organization. Super cool. So the entrepreneurs in the audience who have these small companies who are in that place where they're making those first few hires or looking to expand beyond the founding team, what did you learn during that process that you think people should replicate in their businesses? <laughs> You learn a lot about yourself, right? I mean, the, the most thing, I think that's maybe just part of uh, getting older and, and maybe having more experience is you, you master your strengths and weaknesses. And that's certainly been a, a part of this journey for me is just realizing, you know, where me and my, my team excel and where we can improve. So that's a big part of it, right? It's this, it's an emotional journey. And I feel again, privileged to have two wonderful co-founders because there are times when you want to quit and it's impossibly hard, right? Yeah. But to have someone by your side who, 
you know, can, can lift you up and help you get through it together. That's huge. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's not just in our professional lives, but in our personal lives, I think all of us were blessed to have partners who yep. supported us and believed in us and were there, you know, in the trenches, so to speak, helping us on, on this journey. The other component of it is, you know, one of the, the balancing acts that, that I still struggle with to this day is when you start the business, you go from being an individual contributor, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I fancy myself a high-performing originally operator and then kind of seller or, or growth. I also minded. fancy fancy you that way. <laughs> oh, so, thank yeah. you. That's very oh, kind. Right? But, and so, so when you're used to being a very successful, high-performing individual contributor, but mm-hmm. then you have to shift your mindset to say, well, I need to also be an owner or you know, the role of the CEO is to think about, you know, strategy and, and the long-term future of the business. It's mm-hmm. hard to shift that mindset, right? Especially when it's like, okay, early days, the business needs sales, right? That's the lifeblood of the business. We, we don't make payroll. We go, we go out of business if we don't hit these targets. Right. And I get this little dopamine hit that, you know, it feels good to close the deal. And, you know, I feel like I'm moving the business forward, but in reality, the most impactful thing I could do is, create a repeatable sales process, right? Build a revenue engine, hire incredible people who are going to be more gifted um, at this than I am. And it took me a while to learn that lesson. And I think it's hard for type A people like myself um, who are a bit stubborn, if we're being honest, right? Because you want people to do it your way. And that's not always the right answer. And I had a hard problem delegating and saying, you know, I want this, you know, I, 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 I have comfort when I have strong oversight, but eventually you have to let go. Right. And and in doing so you unlock even more powerful results, you know, Mm -hmm. going through this process. Now, you know, we have incredible people on the team and I look around and, you know, I have like Sebastian on our sales team doing a demo. And, you know, as we're, as I'm listening to him, you know, the, the language is on the tip of my tongue of what to say next but he anticipates it or he does it better than I would now, or, you know, Alex on our customer success team, you know, managing relationships and conversations better than I would think to do it at this point. And and Mm. Jen um, or Josephine on the product side or the operation side, just thinking, I don't know, 10 steps ahead of me at this point. So I think that's really the key is give away your job, right? Replace yourself and and get comfortable switching between the day-to-day tactical operational role you need to have, but also the strategic long-term thinking you know, what is my job need to be six months from now? And how do I get there in as short a time frame as possible? How do I bring the organization along with this and inspire a culture of change and speed? That's a hard thing to learn, but that has been probably one of the most important lessons I've gotten out of this. Yeah, I can relate to the fact that, you know, sometimes you can say it has to be done this way. And if something's going to be done right, I got to do it. Right. And also, you know, I hate to admit there might be some people smarter than me and you, James, out there that we could hire and and do these jobs. Was there one thing that really opened your eyes to letting go and stepping into the CEO role more? Or was it just kind of over time you got used to it and were able to let go? It comes and fits and starts, right? It's, you want to say, oh, you know, at a certain point, I just delegated everything and, and flip of a switch, you know, was better. It doesn't work that way, right? It's, you know, uh, the team around me was great about saying, I'm ready for the challenge. I want more responsibility, you know, and, and realizing when you first hand things off, if things are going to be done at 70 or 80% fidelity, mm-hmm. meaning either the quality that you would expect or the way that you would expect, even if they're doing it slightly different, but the quality is 
is comparable. Right. You have to be okay with that. And yeah. over time, the quality will improve and perhaps exceed, you know, what, what you were doing on your own, but it doesn't happen overnight and it doesn't happen all at once. There were times mm-hmm. where I would give away responsibility and then, you know, like with anything, two steps forward, one step back, me being the problem, you know, I would want to uh, helicopter in and check in on something or get more involved. But I think right. it was a gradual change over time, me becoming more comfortable with it. And then also realizing that like, the only way it improves is if I have this change in my mindset. And so mm. spending time with other leaders, you know, through reading books, I, I have a podcast too. I have been fortunate over the past seven years to interview some of the smartest minds in our industry and learn a lot of tips and, and you know, secrets to success from them. Yeah. Um, leveraging other resources that help me realize, you know, you, you can't do it all by yourself and you have to make your priority thinking about the future and figuring out what are the, resources and capabilities we need to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, because at a certain point, I wasn't working in the business every day that the, the company didn't need me to play a foundational operational role, right? I should be focused on my job is to drive the future of the company. And that only comes from shifting your mindset and spending time on, you know, these, these other topics. Yeah, one more question on the Paladin and Brainwatch business. And I Mm -hmm. do want to have a little time to talk about your podcast as well and to share that with the audience. Going through this acquisition process, what what advice would you give listeners who are going through the same process that you did right or maybe you would have preferred to do a different way? Wow, there's a lot there. Uh, first of all, it's a collaborative effort, right? So there were many people on our team who assisted the process and there were an incredible group of folks on the Brandwatch side that make this happen. And the only way it really happens to be truly successful is if everyone is on the same team, right? I mean, the, the ultimate goal of, of a transaction like this is we're going to be working together. So that needs to be the spirit and the alignment of interest in the deal process. Right. And it, and it absolutely was, I mean, down to having great people in supporting roles. Right. So we worked with an incredible banker, my, my good friend, Jason Rapp at Whisper Advisors, an amazing legal team, Greg Axelrude and, and the Stubbs Alderton crew. And, you know, on, on Brandwatch's side, they had the same thing. Their, their lawyers at Cooley were excellent. Their folks on the, on the team running the due diligence process weren't trying to trip us up. It was very much a spirit of, we want to understand your business. Mm-hmm. We want to set this asset up for success coming into a, our broader portfolio and really unlock the exciting things that we can do together. So if that's the spirit and intention. Anything can be overcome. You can do amazing things together. That's that's probably the most important thing to stress. But again, having a team around us, especially, you know, this is my first time running a process like this. I've been involved in more of an advisory capacity two deals, both on the buy side and the sell side. But when it's, you know, your baby, it's when a it's much you, more personal different. experience. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, people ask me as I was going through it. And then at the end of it, you know, congratulations, like, how does it feel? And of course, there's every bit of excitement and elation and pride, almost, you know, less in, in the sense of, you know, it's this accomplishment, it feels like this big win, which is something again, that we've done together as a team, but more than anything, there's also this sense of relief and satisfaction in that, well, we we're achieving the goal. The success is not the acquisition, a signature on a piece of paper or money in a bank account. The success factor is making sure this works, right? And so success is yeah. not measured today. Success is measured a year from now, 
five, 10 years from now is we're building a lasting business that delivers value to customers, creates an amazing place to work for our employees, has, you know, sustainable, you know, impact on our world and our environment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and for the people that, that um, support the business financially, the shareholders that, you know, take risk and, and believe in us and underwrite our future and our growth, that they, you know, have a, a you know, a fair return as well. So right. those are the criteria that we're using, uh, at least I'm using to measure our success. And that, that's part of my job now stepping into my new role at Brandwatch is to support the integration. And that means the technical integration, the cultural integration, the operational and, and sales infrastructure integration. Yeah. And it's setting our people up for success because the real um, outcome is, you know, measured many months from now, not, not, um, not March 31st. Yeah. And in your role, you're staying on with Brandwatch. And so that might be a little different than somebody who has their brand acquired and then simply exits and goes on to the next chapter or vacation, what have yeah. you. Which was an option, by the way. I mean, we, we were very fortunate that, you know, we're not locked into an earnout or anything like that. I mean, the, the important thing for us was, you know, I spent six years building this business, but not just to walk away, right? Like, I'm, I'm still passionate about it. There's so much more yeah. to be done. There's so clear of an opportunity for us within Brandwatch that I'm a very willing participant. <laughs> and I, I admit that, you know, I'm, pay, I'm playing a much smaller role in a, in a much bigger machine these days. Yeah. But that's exciting, right? That's the next challenge in the next chapter. And, and I wanted to be a steward of this going forward and help our, our people land in, in, in the right way and help Brandwatch see the value that we, you know, we, we all hope to deliver out of this, this collective business. So that's exciting for me is, you know, not to just say, Hey, you know, my work is done and I'm going to sail off into the sun- sunset. Yeah. Um, we're signing up for saying, you know, I believe in this mission and I'm excited mm-hmm. by this opportunity. And that's why I choose to stick around. Not, not for any other reason. And I'm sure that really encourages your partners as well. You know, nowadays, it's kind of like the new American dream is you build a business, you sell it to a bigger company, and then you, like we said, go on vacation or you go to chapter two. When you founded, co-founded Paladin, was acquisition one of your goals or was that just the result of your hard work? You know, I, we, we definitely set out to solve this issue, right? So we knew that we had experienced this pain. We could solve this problem for other people. And that was the driver for us. I mean, more than anything, it's just, it's so cool, even to this day, to see someone light up when we do a product demo and say, this is going to fundamentally change the way I work, or I wish I had this product a year ago, five years ago. Mm -hmm. That's what's so powerful and amazing about getting to do this job and, and what I love about technology and the impact that it has. You know, as we think about, well, we all sacrificed a lot or put a lot of things at risk to make this business work, right? I mentioned the fact that we, we, um, we bootstrapped the business and, and really tangibly what that means is when we started the company, Thomas, my co-founder was, uh, was engaged, he was getting married and he put off having this big wedding and his, um, his now wife was very kind to say, yeah, let's invest that money into this fledgling enterprise rather than have this, you know, this big wedding, which they worked hard for and deserved. So they made a sacrifice, right? And and I had been saving up for a down payment on a house. And it seemed like, well, I'd much rather, you know, take the risk and bet on myself and, and my partners and let's, you know, put that money into into buying a business instead. And so that was that was the 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 goal. Mm-hmm. And then Ole, our third co-founder, his story is maybe the most exciting or the most interesting. 
Ole is Norwegian and he had gone out and bought one of the first Teslas that was available in Norway. He was so excited to have oh, wow. this electric vehicle, which was- well, I've heard of them. You said tes- Tesla, is that how it's been? Yeah, right. Are those electric so or- To buy yeah. this amazing like car that he had worked hard for and saved up the money for. Mm-hmm. And he actually, he bought the car and ended up when we decided to start Paladin, he drove it back to the dealership and returned it and no took way. that money and instead invested in Paladin. Here's and the so, biggest question. What yeah. was the uh, gap in what he bought it for and what he resold it uh, for 24 hours later? That is an amazing question. I need to ask him that at some point. <laughs> I think maybe the consumer protection laws are a little more friendly in Norway than they might okay. be in the US. So he might have he done okay in that transaction. But in any event, like, you know, all three of us, we're kind of all in. We said, you know, yeah. we're putting our, our creative uh, energies into this, but also kind of every dollar to our name at the time. And, and so right. one of the coolest things is, is at the end of this, to know that this was a good investment, not just of time, but of, of those sacrifices that people made and for them to be able to, you know, set up their families for success. That's a really powerful thing. And so, yeah, acquisition was a great path to that. And, and look, the, there's a lot of things that have changed over the years. It used to be a much more sustainable option to go towards IPO companies are staying private longer. There's changes in, in funding structures in the markets and, you know, being private and, and, and having an acquisition is, is a good path for us. It was more of a, a story of, you know, this helps us achieve the broader vision and goals, you know, and, and it's, it's again, rewarding for the, the customers, the employees mm-hmm. and the shareholders. So it's, if it checks all those boxes, then, it, then it's the right decision. Well, it sounds like, you know, well, not only you, but all your partners put that much into it. You're so much in, you're invested in not just financially, but yourselves. And so you're, I would just imagine how hard you work to make this work is that much more. <laughs> and I, I would also say that first partner, I think whenever they renew their vows, I think she, she yeah. deserves that big wedding finally. So let's for sure. For big her. time. <laughs> no, you're right. I mean, when you have that much at stake, you, uh, you really do everything you can to make it work. And, um, I don't regret the decision. It, it absolutely was the right one and worked out for us. Um, like I said, right. Youthful naivete. I think I might make a different decision as someone in my thirties than someone in my twenties, right. Looking back yeah. on it now, but that's because goals and priorities and things change and had how it not worked out, right. Had it, um, not been financially successful, it would have been successful if evaluated on other metrics, right. The things that yeah. we learned, the relationships that we made, the, the opportunities that we created for the people on our team, that's so valuable. Right. And, and, and even had we not found, you know, this exciting new chapter with Brandwatch, it was still the right choice for us. And it was still, at least speaking personally, something I'm, I'm glad to have made the the choice to risk, you know, to, to, to make the investment and, and put that much at stake because it worked out, but obviously that's not for everyone. Right. And so right. I do caution people, especially uh, young people who are interested in entrepreneurship. It's an amazing path, but I tell people do stuff on nights and weekends, don't invest mm-hmm. stuff that you're not willing to lose. Yeah. Uh, you know, make sure that if you are going to take the entrepreneurial leap that, you know, you're in it for the journey and for the experience you're not just chasing a paycheck because there's much better ways to get rich, let me tell you. But when when everything does align and you can be successful and, and you want to build a career this way, it's a really empowering and, and incredible experience. That's awesome. So speaking of passions, we are both podcasters and it's something that we both really enjoy. Tell me, first of all, tell me the title and the theme of your podcast. And then I'd love to learn uh, more about why you started in the first place seven years ago. 
Yeah. So the podcast is called All Things Video. Maybe could use a bit of a refresh, but you know, when I started it, whatever, seven or eight years ago at this point, I was chronicling the stories of people who were innovating in the digital video space, right? And obviously that's pretty broad and it's now come to include traditional film and TV and, and also digital media. Um, I've done a lot kind of with folks in music and gaming. So it's broadly interviewing entrepreneurs um, and other leaders. So successful executives and pioneers in the digital media industries mm -hmm. um, and learning from them, right? Saying, what are the things you wish you knew when you were my age? Or what are the mistakes that you made? Or what are the you know, key um, insights that you've learned along this journey that we can pass on to more people. So, you know, I was listening to a lot of podcasts seven plus years ago, mm -hmm. uh, and obviously pod podcasts have exploded in popularity since then. Yeah. But um, I was just motivated to say, hey, I'm, I'm fortunate to get to know these really interested, talented people. I wish I could share their stories with a bigger audience. And that was mm -hmm. the whole impetus behind launching All Things Video and, you know, being able to sit down and, and talk with smart people like yourself and tease out some lessons learned. Appreciate that. Yeah. So what has been the benefit to your other goals, whether it's you're an advisor for many brands, obviously, we've talked a lot about Paladin, Brandwatch. What would you say for those who are saying, listening, saying, you know, should I have a side hustle? Should I put times towards this, this, this podcast idea? How would how how has that benefited your other initiatives? Yeah, for me, it's been incredible, right? I mean, I get a lot of energy from uh, meeting other people, learning from them. The advisory work that I do grew out of this passion for helping others. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, you know, I've been privileged to work with some really incredible media and technology companies, most of which are in digital or in and around creator economy, which kind of taps into my network and expertise. But I'm just fascinated by the incredible businesses being built and, and the impact they're having. And yeah. for me, it's an amazing chance to learn about something I don't know as much about, right? I have some uh, pattern matching skills and some relationships that I, I can bring to bear to help these companies. But oftentimes I don't know as much about the music industry or about, you know, like AI localization software, like with Papercap, or I don't know about certain markets, like what Flash FOMO is doing with merchandise in um, Southeast Asia, right? So it's an education and, and create learning experience and exposure for me. But it's also a way that I can hopefully share what little I've learned along the way with other people who are on the journey. So supporting them and, and helping their businesses succeed. So I do that. I do a little bit of angel investing. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much relationship driven too. I, I might start to write a few more checks now, but I, I mostly I'll take one like if you're handing them. <laughs> I like backing entrepreneurs that I believe in and who are building something that's that's powerful and transformational, and and so that's it's always a privilege when I get to support them in that way. And then yeah, I, I do the podcast, and yeah, uh, you do a bit of coaching, so helping um, founders who are are going through you know challenges in their business or, or want some support and help thinking through you know what is the next phase or what's what's growth look like how do we unlock more potential in my business i, I do mm -hmm. some work with them on that front so it's a bit of a diverse mixture but i what i found is it helps keep me sharp in yeah. in my operating role it helps me meet new people um, learn new new skills and relationships and that's why i do it it's it's completely complementary and additive to the other work that I do in, in my day job. Yeah, it sounds like you're building this robust community and then you're also helping people in the ways that the, the things that you've experienced yourself. Last question on the podcast is I'm curious what your experience has been getting guests on your podcast. The reason I ask that is I think that can be one of the most intimidating things for people who are starting out. They're saying, man, who's going to want to talk to me? Who's going to want to join me? My experience personally has been number one, 
a lot of people feel very honored to be asked to share their story. A lot of C-suite people love to talk, love to talk about what they're doing. And I've had moments where I was like, oh, there's no way I could get this person or I have to build this ladder of credibility. I've got to get this CEO before this CEO. And a perfect example, last week I had uh, former PepsiCo executive Brad Jakeman on. And Amazing interview, by the way. I was listening to it this past weekend. Thank yeah. you. Appreciate that. Yeah. So that was definitely a milestone for me. Like, wow, I got this guy. And my path to that was I had Susan Paley, the founding CEO of Beats by Dre on the podcast quite wow. some time ago, and she's incredible. And so I thought, man, I've got the the credibility of Susan. If she's willing to do it, Brad might be willing to do it. So I, I you know, developed this, this pitch and all this. I think I'm super strategic. And Brad says, John, you could have asked me a long time ago and I would have done it. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for him. No, he was very forthcoming in what he shared and obviously he had a great career to highlight. So I recommend people go back and listen to the episode, but Thanks. you'd be surprised, right? I think your point is that these people want to be able to share their stories yeah. and it's more of a sense of oftentimes I find giving back, right? It's like, yes, I want to share the things I've learned. And, and honestly, like even being interviewed on a podcast, you often, you know, get a, a chance to learn a lot of things or have yeah. these interesting connection points. So it's a great resource to share. And, and it's um, awesome to hear that so many people are open to it. For me, for guests, oftentimes I'm sourcing through my network. So again, mm -hmm. just smart, interesting people I know or that I'm privileged to meet and, you know, bringing them into the studio or, or sitting down through a Zoom chat like this and, and just saying, you know, walk me through your early career and what are you working on today? And what are you excited about? And, you mm -hmm. know, the industry is changing so quickly you know, what are the parallels we can draw to historical changes? Those are the types of things that I geek out about. And so getting a chance to do that with, with someone else who oftentimes is much smarter than me is uh, <laughs> a great way to illuminate some stuff for the audience. Yeah. As we're coming to the end of this episode here, what, if, if you want people to come away from this episode, learning or knowing one thing that we haven't touched on, or maybe reinforcing a point, what would that be? Get a coach or a mentor, right? You're only as strong as the people around you. So that goes for your team, but it also goes for, um, you know, the, the folks that, that back you up and make sure to support you and your mental health and your longevity. You have to take care of yourself, right? Through building a business, you know, going through an M&A process, it's stressful, it's, it's taxing. Mm -hmm. So find a therapist, a coach, a mentor, you know, partners and friends that, that are your community. The other thing is give back, right? I was um, a snotty nosed kid on LinkedIn asking for help and favors from much more experienced people than me uh, years and years ago. And I try to keep that in mind when I get those requests nowadays. And look, a, a lot of things, email requests or, or LinkedIn can be a bit spammy. And so you have to be discerning and, and kind of weed out the, the qualified things. But oftentimes, if it's a student or if it's a first time entrepreneur that's looking for help, even when I'm strapped for time, I try to at least tell people, hey, circle back with me in a few weeks or what can I, if I can give you five minutes or if I can give you a quick answer over LinkedIn, I, I try to do that because I think it is important to mm -hmm. um, share in that community. It's, we're not, you know, you don't just like get on and then get off the train. It's, it's this kind of continuum of, of supporting other people who are following a similar path. So I think that would be what I would stress is like, have fun, you know, keep everything in perspective and then try to pay it forward and, and give back to, to other people who are along for the ride, you know, uh, whether they're wherever they are in their journey, um, make sure that you are open to, to helping people. It goes a long way. Awesome. That's great advice. What are the ways that you would like people to follow you and keep up with what you're doing personally and at Brandwatch? 
Yeah. The best way to keep in touch is LinkedIn, right? I'm very active on there. In fact, all of 2021, I, I posted every weekday. I've taken a bit of a, a break from my crazy LinkedIn posting schedule. I will return to share more thoughtful long form stuff pretty soon. And I, I still, you know, I'm on there, you know, a couple of times a month, but I, sure. I intend to be more regular. So please connect with me, reach out to me there. You can also check out the podcast, all things video. Um, again, I've been a little bit uh, delinquent in terms of like posting new episodes, but I want to get back to that um, when I'm able to. And um, if anyone is looking for help or if I can support you in an advisory or an angel investing capacity, get in touch, find someone who knows me and, and um, I'd be happy to have a conversation. But thank you, John, for this. It's been a privilege to, to get to hang out with you and, and share a little bit of the story with your audience. So it's been fun to, fun to be here. Yeah, my pleasure. I learned a lot. Um, I had a kind of a base level of influencer marketing, loved hearing the back end and then hearing this incredible journey of yours from film school all the way uh, to SVP of Brand Watch here today. So thank you so much, James Creech, for joining me today on the DLC Drop podcast. My pleasure. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to the DLC Drop podcast. This podcast is part of the Esports Future Eye Podcast Network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review.